The Gospel according to St. Matthew, the 11th chapter, verses 7 through 15. The kingdom of heaven suffereth violence. Matthew 11, verses 7 through 15, with particular emphasis on verses 11 through 15. And as they departed, Jesus began to say unto the multitudes concerning John, What went he out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken with the wind? But what went he out for to see a man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they that wear soft clothing are in kings' houses. But what went he out for to see? A prophet? Yea, I say unto you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if he will receive it, this is Elias which was for to come. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. According to Milton S. Terry, one of the great scholars in hermeneutics, the study of the biblical text and its interpretation, writing in the last century, there are seven ways to interpret this passage, and it has been often a subject of considerable debate and controversy among biblical scholars. However, the seven ways to interpret it can be really divided into two, good or bad. And the key in the interpretation is verse 12. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. Now, if you have marginal notes in your Bible, you will see that suffereth violence can be rendered also, or is gotten by force, and they that thrust men take it by force, or as the Berkeley version renders it, but from the time of John until now, the kingdom of heaven has been rushed, and the impetuous seize it by force. It is important for us to understand this passage. I think basically it is easy to see the interpretation because our Lord uses the same statement elsewhere in another context and makes it clear that the meaning is positive. He declares in Luke 16, verse 16, The law and the prophets were until John. 
Since that time the kingdom of God is preached, and every man presseth into it. Now that clearly is a positive sense. One of our problems, of course, is the verb in this case, piazzo, the Greek word, word, which means violence, has for us today a purely negative sense. The only way we think of violence, because we have been conditioned by the thinking of the last century so heavily, is in a bad sense. Just as we are conditioned to think of hate as only in a bad sense. And sometimes we fail to realize that hate is necessary. We should hate evil. There are certain things we should hate. Now, as we analyze, therefore, this passage, we must say, first, the context very definitely precludes a negative meaning. Our Lord says that John the Baptist was the greatest of those born of women, that is, by natural birth. Thus, our Lord placed John the Baptist second only to himself of all men who had lived until then. He declared him, moreover, to be the new Elijah, like the old Elijah proclaiming the death of the old order and the birth of a new one. Then, our Lord says next, that in the glory of this new era, the new kingdom, the least is greater than the great man of history apart from himself, John the Baptist. Our Lord speaks of this new kingdom as the kingdom of God. It reads in Matthew, kingdom of heaven. Why is there the difference in Matthew and elsewhere in scripture between kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God? Now, the Schofieldians have made a great deal of this distinction, and they have a rather esoteric idea of two kingdoms and so on. But the meaning is very simple. Matthew was written for Hebrews. And throughout, very plainly, very definitely, The Gospel according to St. Matthew was originally written with a Hebrew audience in mind. In those days, the one thing you did not do, whatever else the apostasy of Israel had led it to, was to take the name of the Lord in vain or at all. To avoid taking the name of the Lord, they avoided all reference to God or to Jehovah. They used a circumlocution every time, a roundabout way of saying God or Jehovah. And as a result, instead of saying kingdom of God, the Jews would say the kingdom of heaven. And instead of saying God, they would say Lord Adonai. And they had a number of uh, other phrases, the Most High and so on, whereby they avoided saying the name of God or God. 
This, of course, is what is known as negative holiness. In other words, you say you're going to be holy not because you do the will of God, but you go around the barn to avoid doing something that might put you in a compromising position. We have a great deal of negative holiness in our midst today, and it is not real holiness. Then, third, we must say that our Lord makes it clear that John himself opened up this great pressing in of men to the kingdom by his ministry in the wilderness. And very definitely, when he proclaimed the end of the old order in the wilderness, his language was emphatic. John the Baptist said, the axe is laid to the root of the tree, the old order. He spoke of the old order as chaff to be thrown into the fire. He used every kind of vivid imagery to indicate that there was an emergency situation, that they had to flee from the wrath to come, and the only way to flee was into the arms of God, to believe in his Messiah was to come. And so because John had declared an emergency situation, urgent action was required of men. They had the great choice of the ages before them. The Messiah was to come. Would they choose in his favor and be rescued or be destroyed in the judgment that was to come? Now remember, this was very, very urgently proclaimed by John, and our Lord in Matthew 24 reinforces this. He declared as he left the temple for the last time, left a huge building that occupied ten acres of land with tremendous walls of huge stone two and three feet through, that not one stone would be left standing upon another. Thus both John and then our Lord had declared a tremendous judgment was ahead. Emergency action, violent action was necessary. Then forth we must say that those who took John's preaching seriously were the violent ones or impetuous ones or the thrusting ones determined to get into the kingdom. Their spirit was like that of Jacob at Penal when he declared, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. One commentator, Sherman E. Johnson, who is definitely not orthodox, has nonetheless commented in analyzing the Greek of this text, and as a Greek scholar has said, that the meaning is almost certainly this of verse 12. From John's time until now, the kingdom is exercising its own spiritual force, and men of spiritual force are able to lay hold of it. For the law and the prophets were until John, but now the new age has come. In passing, it should be noted that Calvin gave a similar interpretation centuries ago. 
Then next we must say that our Lord very definitely makes clear that the meaning of violent is favorable. The violent ones gain the kingdom. Now, very obviously, our Lord would never say that the ungodly take the kingdom or enter it or possess it in any way. But he says very definitely that the violent do take it by force. Thus, very plainly, salvation for our Lord clearly means an intense concern and desire for the kingdom of God. It means a yearning, a longing for God's order with all our heart, mind, and being. In the Sermon on the Mount, our Lord said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And the word seek there has the same connotation of press forward, grab, lay hold of, make it your major concern. Our Lord also taught concerning the kingdom that it was like a precious treasure, which when a man found that it was buried in a field, he sold everything that he had in order to buy that field and to possess it. Over and over again in our teaching, in his teaching, our Lord makes it clear the energy, the pressing forward, the sense of violent, onrushing desire to lay hold of the kingdom. This, moreover, is foremost in his teaching of the meaning of prayer in the Lord's Prayer. Now, in the Lord's Prayer, our Savior taught us how to pray, where the priorities were. Moreover, it is significant that we are commanded by God to pray, and he who asks us to pray, having the wherewithal to grant our prayers, certainly wants us to pray that he might answer us. The first petition of the Lord's Prayer is, Hallowed be thy name. Turning again to Sherman Johnson, he comments on the meaning of this petition as a Greek scholar, and I quote, Hallowed be thy name means approximately the same as Father glorify thy name in John 12, 28. But here the passive form is used, as in the Kadesh, to avoid a direct imperative. God is asked to sanctify his name and to cause men to sanctify it. The sanctification of the name is a rich and many-sided concept in Jewish thought. God sanctifies his name by condemning and opposing sin, by separating Israel from the world and giving it his commandments and his love and grace. It is also Israel's task to sanctify God's name by sanctifying itself in keeping his law, his commandments, and doing all other things which redound to his glory. God's name will be fully sanctified in the age to come when everything that opposes his will has been removed and punishment is no longer necessary, unquote. 
Now this is an excellent summary of the significance of hallowed be thy name in biblical thought in the Old Testament. Hallowing God's name thus means believing in him, obeying his law, and uniting with God in condemning and opposing sin. It means that we acknowledge God's grace and law and that we work to bring all things into that state of salvation and sanctification whereby men hallow God's name in the totality of their lives and in the totality of their activities. Then the next petition, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. This then sets forth the priorities. That which should be our intense desire, the longing of our being, the passion of our lives. There's an expression, I want it so much I can almost taste it, which is a good one. It speaks about that intense longing. Now, the significance of this verse is that we not only have that intense longing, but we push forward with that same intense longing in whatever we are doing in our family life, in our work, in every area, with our praying, our giving, our thinking, longing for God's order, God's peace, God's salvation upon all the earth. Moreover, the verb, fiasco, violence, means an effort of pressing in where there is opposition so that you Go against opposition because you are determined to get where you want to go. The kingdom of man opposes you. The kingdom of God must be gained by hard work, pressure, a pressing in, an onrushing energy. Now this is what the verb conveys. The world seeks to prevent entrance. The world seeks to hinder the kingdom of God. But men, by a tremendous impetuous force, are determined to establish it, to enter into an order where God rules. I think something of what our Lord here meant can be gained from an analysis of past history. When we go back to the Puritan Commonwealth in England, some of the facts that turn up concerning it are rather startling. For example, not too long ago a scholar did a very, very lengthy study in two large volumes of the Puritan movement in England in the 17th century, a movement which captured the country, 
which in Cromwell swept all forces before it and became the major power in Europe. There was not an army in Europe that could stand up before Cromwell's men. The startling fact he turned up was this. Only 4% of England was Puritan. 4%. Maybe 3 or 4% or 5% were royalists, very clearly on the king's side, or less. The bulk of the people did not care. The same was true in this country. During the colonial period, in the early constitutional period, when the Puritan order prevailed to a great extent off and on in this country, again it was a small minority. But they knew what they believed. They worked to establish it, establish it, and they conquered. Today, what is the situation? I do not believe there are more immoral teenagers now than there were 50 years ago. I definitely do not believe. It. In fact, I think, if anything, it may be the other way around. The percentage of them all may be a little higher. I do not believe that as far as the degenerate element in this country is concerned, they are that much more numerous. The difference is that the energetic thrust, the driving force today is on the part of these men who are evil. And the righteous are no longer sure of themselves. And they sit back, and as a result, the country is passed into alien hands. Now this is what our Lord is talking about. And this is why when he spoke of it, In Luke, he used the word pressing, pushing, using violent force to enter in. This is the kind of thing our Lord speaks of when he means faith. It is not mere belief. It is the power of God in men whereby men press forward in every area to conquer in Christ's name. As a result, what our Lord here says is not only to be taken in a favorable sense, but is intended as a rebuke to every age that does not have that tremendous power and driving force. When Calvin spoke of this text, He said that violence meant that our Lord called for warmth, for heat, for dry, in terms 
of his kingdom. And without citing it, in effect his words recalled the words of our Lord to the church of the Laodiceans. When the ultimate in their sin was characterized as being lukewarm. And he declared, Because thou art neither hot nor cold, but lukewarm, I will spew thee out of my mouth. The lukewarm can command nothing. They can be the great majority and usually are. But they are the impotent ones in the situation. And so our Lord here calls, very emphatically, for us to be like those men who, having heard John's preaching and our Lord's, recognized that the world was in an emergency situation. Now, if you are in a house on fire, you do not leave by opening the window, and if it's stuck, saying, well, there's no point in breaking that glass, or if the door is stuck, you say, well, I can't break that. You break down the door or the window to get out. You use violence. And the violence is not here in any unfavorable sense. But emergency action, a great pressing urgency to accomplish that which is right. So our Lord says, if you know the treasure is there, you will sell all you have to buy that field to gain that treasure. This is faith. And this is seeking, working for, and entering into the kingdom of God. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who of thy grace and mercy has made us thy people, we thank thee that thou hast given us such great promises. And we pray, our Father, that by thy grace this generation may again see a powerful, violent, onrushing, impetuous force in men of faith to enter into, to establish, to declare thy kingdom, thy rule, and thy authority. Bless us to this purpose, we beseech thee. In Jesus' name, amen. Are there any questions now, first of all, on our lesson?
we are the problem. We have the answer and we're not pressing forward with it, you see. This is what our Lord is saying. The key is that we must act. In every area, we have to establish the crown rights of King Jesus. We have to establish a Christian concept for that area. We have to develop a different strategy, a different kind of operation. We have to reconquer each field. Yes. say it's a very excellent analysis. The overemphasis on love plus the uh, kind of eschatology whereby you believe you're going to be raptured out and so you don't worry about this world has led to a surrender. It has led to a cop-out, to, a, uh, to an inability to fight. It is interesting, uh, some of you may have noticed this in an editorial on the sword and the trowel. Uh, the point was made that in the apostolic preaching in the book of Acts, never once does the word love appear. It is very interesting. Now love very definitely has a strong place in scripture. But the urgency of the message that the apostles took into every place was not love, but the resurrected Christ. So the next point he makes is, and not only do we go astray in stressing love to an unhealthy degree, but we also stress Christ crucified to an unhealthy degree, because in the apostolic preaching in the book of Acts, it's Christ resurrected. Christ resurrected. And this is a very interesting point because while Reisinger, who wrote the editorial, is not aware of it, one of the most interesting books written back in the 30s by Mackay was titled The Spanish Christ. And it was written by a scholar and it was the one good book he wrote. Uh, he wrote a number of things. He was a Princeton scholar, but the others are poor and indifferent. But this came out of a background of having lived in the Spanish world, in Latin America, of speaking Spanish like a native, and of knowing Catholic theology, Spanish Catholic theology. And he pointed to the greatness at one time of the faith in Spain and in Spanish Catholicism and what a tremendous and powerful force it was. But he says the thing that led to its deterioration and to the deterioration of Spain was 
that the emphasis gradually shifted to the crucified Christ, to Christ in agony on the cross, so that Good Friday in Spanish Catholicism became the central day and the day of resurrection was just of comparatively minor importance. The emphasis was placed on the suffering of Christ and of man's lot suffering in this world so that little by little the vitality was lost in Spanish Catholicism which had earlier been so powerful a force. Now, Reisinger in his editorial has put his finger on what's happening in evangelical circles, you see. Because by the overemphasis on Christ crucified as against Christ resurrected, having destroyed through the cross the power of sin and death, means that uh, instead of victory, you emphasize bearing patiently sufferings until you are raptured out of them. Yes? Yes. Very good point. The scripture makes clear that our citizenship is in heaven. Our conversation, our citizenship is in heaven. Conversation there having the meaning also of citizenship. But we are also declared to be ambassadors. We are also declared by St. Paul who made that statement to be soldiers. So, uh, what are our functions? We are citizens of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. We are ambassadors. We represent it here on earth. So we have a duty to represent it wherever we are faithfully. We are soldiers put on the whole armor of God in that we have a duty to conquer this world. So you see, you cannot take one aspect of the uh, imagery that St. Paul uses and not the other. Our citizenship is there, but we are here as ambassadors and soldiers to conquer, to claim every area for Christ. Now, it is interesting in terms of that belief that we are ambassadors, that the churches to this day have tax exemption. Now, this is a very important point. And it is one of the growing disasters that many churchmen, evangelical and modernist, are saying, well, why should the church be tax-exempt? Why should it have special privilege and so on? Well, men died for that. They fought and went to the chopping block to defend that principle. And it's simply this. The church is a representative on earth of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And therefore, it represents an embassy. Now, the embassy in Los Angeles or in Washington, D.C. has extraterritorial rights. In other words, 
anything that happens, say, in the British Embassy, is not subject to American law, it is subject to British law. Therefore, the church itself is not subject, you see, according to this, to British law or to American law or to German or French law. It is subject to the law of God. It is not taxable. It cannot be governed by the courts. It is its own law sphere. Now this is a very important concept. Our Supreme Court has not yet formally denied that. As a matter of fact, in its various decisions where church cases are at stake, it has, even though it has interfered in the realm of the church, paid lip service to it and tried to give its decision within the framework of saying, we have no jurisdiction over the church. So the Supreme Court of the United States still maintains to a considerable degree this principle, which is all important. Once you surrender it, you have surrendered something that the early church died for. Because, if you recall, I have said previously that in the early church, all that was required was to ask for permission as a licensed religion. They could be tolerated. But they refused. They did not want to be subject to Roman government, Roman taxation, Roman legislation. They were outposts embassies of the kingdom of God. Yes? Yes, uh, and it is interesting that the National Council of Churches is going in as a friend uh, of, uh, of, uh, to assist him because they've awakened on this one point to the potential danger. They've been on the wrong side of the issue consistently, but in this issue they've realized that if Hargis is uh, wiped out, they could be next. So they're willing to argue here that the state has no jurisdiction in the area of the church. No. No, I, I think in this case every church agency that has the funds should appear. Yes. Subordinationism. Wherever you have 
any subordination in the Trinity, say, of uh, the Son and the Holy Spirit to God, so that you really have one God and a semi-God in Christ and a semi-God in the Spirit, you immediately have a surrender to the world. Now, I go into the reason why this is so on foundations of social order. But in uh, Schofieldianism and a great deal of all, all premillennialism virtually, you find that when they say God, they do not mean the Trinity, they mean the Father. And they do not normally, as they speak of Jesus, either stress or think of him as very God of very God. So that their view of Christ is very definitely defective or at the best a subordinationist position. And this leads to a surrender of the world, as I point out, in Foundations of Social Art. Yes? No, I think they changed their name simply because the under the old name they were getting so notorious. They have not changed their theology at all or become any better, but uh, they've simply become a little frightened by this. It's not that they've seen the theological issues at all. Well, they have, yes, but uh, they are still getting a lot from the denomination. That's true, but when they withdraw it one way, they pay it another, so it's a... Right. Any other questions? Well, we have one announcement. There will be no meeting this Thursday evening in our study of the biblical theory of knowledge. We will have our regular meeting a week from Thursday. I am leaving in the morning for Washington, D.C. and then Virginia to lecture in various places. So I'll be gone all week. We will, I will be back Saturday and we will have our regular meeting next Thursday. Let's bow our heads now for the benediction. And now go in peace, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. Bless you and keep you, guide and protect you, this day and always. Amen.